Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. In the interest of um, getting as much discussion in as possible, I'm going to keep any remarks and introductions short, as has been tradition before me. So, Of course, in this final panel, we hope to build on the conversations of the first two and to discuss how notions of, of progress and value embedded in scientific research, as they were discussed in panel one, uh, and the opportunities for ethical deliberation involving broad constituents, constituencies and alternate framings, as they were discussed on panel two, uh, meet and are navigated and settled in the public policy sphere, as Carrie put it, where the rubber meets the road. Uh, we also hope to discuss the role of journalism in constituting a public realm of discourse and serving as a fourth estate that frames issues of science and policy. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to introduce the speakers briefly in the order in which they will speak, and then we'll get going. So Maria Milan is the president and CEO of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM. Under her leadership, CIRM has generated a robust and growing portfolio as a patient-centric funder, partner, accelerator, and de-risker for over 1,000 projects in basic translational and clinical research, as well as infrastructure and education programs. She joined CIRM in 2012 and led the implementation of CIRM's unique acceleration model, the formation of infrastructure to support translational and clinical research, and the growth of CIRM's clinical stage portfolio. She took on the role of president and CEO in 2017. Uh, Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he publishes the newsletter Work in Progress on Science, Tech, and Culture. He's founder and host of the news podcast Plain English and the previous host of the podcast Crazy Slash Genius, which won the 2020 Publisher Podcast Award for Best Podcast of the Year. Uh, he's also a news analyst with NPR, uh, where he appears on the national news show Here and Now and is a contributor to CBS News. Uh, Sheila Jasanoff is Forsheimer Professor of Science and Technology Studies at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, she explores the role of science and technology in the law, politics, and policy of modern democracies. Uh, in addition to being the director of the Global Observatory for Genome Editing, which she mentioned in her remarks this morning, she founded and directs the STS program at Harvard, where she also formed the Science and Democracy Network. Previously, she was founding chair of the STS department at Cornell. Okay, so we'll start with Maria. Thank you very much. Um, I wrote some notes because, as I said earlier, these questions first require some translation for me to figure out how to answer them. So I'm gonna just, we had some guiding questions, and I'm going to read the questions and then, you know, just given. I think um, providing CIRM as a model, perhaps, of how some of these questions could be answered or some approaches. So I hope that that's helpful as a starting point for some of these conversations. So the first question is, how do visions and norms of scientific progress inform, encourage, or constrain democratic governance of science? And so... Um, I'll submit that um, CIRM could be considered an example of democratic governance of science, and I'll explain why that is. Um, our, CIRM's mission is currently to accelerate um, stem cell and regenerative medicine, which is stem cell and genomics medicine uh, related research to deliver transformative treatments to patients with unmet medical needs to a diverse Californian world. And so every single word in that is something that we embody in, in our programs. But how did CIRM um, first start? And so in 2004, in response to many of the issues that were discussed today regard, regarding the history of stem cell research, um, the California um, stakeholders, some of which you heard a little bit of exchange about earlier, um, decided to put on the ballot an initiative um, and so in 2004, a proposition called Prop 71 
um, was a bond initiative that passed with 59% of Californians um, supporting the initiative. It amended the state constitution to establish the right to conduct stem cell research, including embryonic stem cell research in California, create CIRM, and authorize $3 billion to fund research. And then I'll give a little bit more of an idea of how CIRM was run since then, but um, through that, the course of that time, over uh, 1,100 programs were funded, infrastructure was set up, thousands of students um, uh, received funding to be educated in that field. It, it essentially built a, an ecosystem in that, in that arena, and in 2020, um, another ballot initiative came in because Prop 71 did, was scheduled to sunset. Another ballot initiative uh, was brought forward called Proposition 14, and um, that gave CIRM an additional $5.5 billion in funding to continue this work and stipulated additional activities, actually, in addition to stem cell and genomics research um, in, um, in the areas of the following. An earmark for neurologic research, um, which includes neuropsychiatric as well as uh, neurodevelopmental and uh, neurodegenerative um, disease. So, again, it's a public... Uh, you know, stipulation and and this authorization for that type of research, um, establishment of shared research and clinical infrastructure to advance the research, and establishment of programs um, and funding to increase access and affordability to any any uh, therapeutics that come out of this research, and it established a specific fund by statute so that any. Um, uh, funds that were returned to the state as a subject of the revenue sharing provisions of these grants would be put into a, a fund called the Patient Assistance Fund, which is to be um, made um, available in order to make the clinical trials and treatments that, that arise from the research um, accessible to those, especially those without the means to be able to access them. So, you know, in addition to authorizing this, what was built into this proposition is an actual democratic governance structure. It established by statute a 35-member board, so Prop 14 as a 35-member board with representation from the community, patient advocates, nurses, um, mental health professionals, uh, uh, industry um, representatives, as well as research leaders. And... Um, a conflict of interest management plan put in place to make sure that the right people were voting on things, but there was um, to, to expand the ability for all of those parties to weigh in. And the whole function of this oversight committee is both to make sure that the agency delivers on what was said in the proposition, um, to uh, set forth the scope of, of what's funded, the um, authorization of the funds for the programs themselves, and then to also ensure that, um, you know, it's research is done in a way that's compatible with the needs. And one of the recent um, moves by the board is to make sure that diversity, equity, inclusion is a major part of actually review criteria and how uh, grants are funded, um, as well as, you know, just embedding that in our systems. 
So when, in addition to this, um, systems were put in place so that CIRM could have types of conversations with the right parties along the way um, to discuss its medical and ethical standards. Um, there's a standards working group that's composed of ethicists, um, policymakers, patient representatives, and, and scientists that reviews some the topics, many of the topics that are discussed today, to determine whether CIRM policies and conduct are consistent with the conversations and take those into account as they arise. And then they inform the board in terms of if there need to be changes in policy or changes in how CIRM does things. Those are things that are brought to the, to the board. So that's an advisory that's built into the system. Um, in addition, there's a, you know, when we fund clinical trials, there's a clinical advisory panel that not only have scientific experts, but patient advocates and patient representatives on that panel, in addition to regulatory manufacturing, other experts. What's important about that? Um, when the programs get funded, um, they meet the requirements in terms of being compliant with FDA regulatory requirements and all the medical and ethical standards, but in real time, on the ground, there's um, immediate feedback, and I'll give you some examples where our patient advocates may work, may question, you know, in the conduct of this program, are the patients truly understanding the informed consent? If there is a problem with enrollment, are, are, is there adequate outreach to the right communities? Is that being done the right way? So it's a continual learning process, and so it's really valuable. Um, how do questions of warrant, purpose, and benefit get asked and answered? So I'll do this really quickly. So essentially, the way things are set up is that the question of purpose and benefit are built into the system. Um, when it, before we launch any type of uh, program opportunities, there's a landscape analysis assessment and stakeholder engagement with the public scientific community to understand how the funding could benefit the public. Um, and that is brought to the board as a concept proposal and that the board feels that it's compatible with the with the with the with the spirit of of the initiative and that does um, present public benefit then it approves that and then we can open the program announcement and all of these are reevaluated and the grant making process in itself involves external external reviewers outside of California um, experts um, including some in this room who evaluate the grants for scientific merit um, and then we also have uh, some board members who are patient advocates on the board to evaluate it from that perspective, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is part of the scoring. So after that, that body recommends to the board their uh, recommendation whether to fund or not fund. The board still has the opportunity to do whatever it thinks it should from a programmatic perspective based on that scientific um, um, recommendation most of the time it concurs with it but there are some times that they would say they haven't fully addressed the diversity equity and inclusion and that it'll be sent back to the applicants for instance um, and then the third question is private public public private partnerships um, CIRM actually embraces public private partnership there are differences in terms of who public and private entities answer to right so um, as a public entity we, we are fully in service of the public and for the public good. Uh, private entities are, um, are um, serving their stakeholders. Um, 
but there is definitely a an event diagram, a major overlap in terms of you know where there are benefits to this partnership, um, and what we're able to make that work because CIRM keeps in the kind of as their guiding principle the public good and the mission. And by doing so, they do things that the, the, the private sector doesn't do. They de-risk program, we de-risk programs early on when there's not enough um, data, for instance, for, for investors or other entities to fund the program, and then, then they can take it on later on. Or there may be cases, as Matt brought up, where there are corporate decisions based on whatever it is, um, business decisions or the, or the economy, where they let go of programs that have potential benefit to patients. And then CIRM can fund the academic centers to continue that work. Um, also, CIRM funds infrastructure that not a single entity uh, would probably fund, but they benefit from, such as setting up clinical networks um, that are specialized in, in cell and gene therapy. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm going to stop there because I think we'll have an opportunity for more specific questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so we'll move right on to Derek. Hi. Um, I think I might be uh, unique in the room in that approximately 99.5% of everything that I know about synthetic embryos I learned in the last six hours. Um, uh, that makes me potentially, you might say, um, a typical member of the media, uh, constantly parachuting into issues in which I know nothing and then digging myself out of ignorance. I think there's as a result, I, what I want to give you here is not the, the gift of um, fake intelligence, but actually the gift of, of ignorance, the understanding that when scientists are trying to make their ideas alive in the world, um, they are dealing with a public and a media and a government that is by definition less expert than they are. And scientists cannot necessarily always control the language that the public uses to understand their breakthroughs. So... You know, one way that I think um, I can imagine, say, maybe a cable news host summarizing what we learned this morning, um, especially from the most important slides um, in Dr. Hanna's work, is that we're talking about a future in which someone who needs a liver transplant will have some skin scraped from them. A scientist will turn that, those skin cells into a stem cell. A embryonic clone will be grown in a lab of that sick patient from which will be harvested liver cells that will be turned into a liver that the now dead embryonic clone will essentially have donated his or her uh, self, essentially. Um, on the one hand, we're talking about magic here. On the other hand, we're kind of talking about something that, you know, a Tucker Carlson or someone on MSNBC, CNN, could call, you know, dead clone donations. Um, this is the language that is going to be used by the public in assessing um, the breakthroughs that happen in labs. It's not going to be smart. It can't be as smart as the experts from which it comes. It's going to be this kind of slightly dumbed down but hopefully somewhat realistic um, vocabulary. And it's important, I think, to say that scientists cannot control the vocabulary into which audiences, the vocabulary of the audiences that they're reaching. Um, and that's just an important thing to think about when we're thinking about the moral limits, because the moral limits are partially delineated by the vocabulary that's chosen by the people. Um, I was thinking about the concept today of like um, the ways that the media often treats uh, scientific revolutions. Um, and uh, I feel like we very often break into this utopia versus dystopia view. They're, these are easy questions to ask with the future of science. Uh, what if everything goes terribly dystopia? What if everything goes perfectly utopia? The future is, it, it is, 
it, 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 it could be Schrodinger-esque. It could be quantum in its superposition of utopia and dystopia simultaneously. But it's also typically neither of those. What often happens, it seems to me, is that there's other more important questions that we could ask that we don't ask. One important question, for example, could be, what if this just doesn't work? Or what if this only works like 85%-ish? Like, no one was asking those questions of something like, let's take a technology at random, self-driving cars. The future of self-driving cars was discussed like this. What happens when self-driving cars take over the road? What's, what are all the best things that happens? And then what about all the taxi drivers that are replaced? What about all the, the drivers that lose their jobs? Driving a car in America happens to be one of the most common jobs that a man holds in the country. This was a statistic that happened before Uber was a larger part of the workforce, um, what are the jobs it's going to replace? It turned out what happened is self-driving cars solved like 89, 98% of the problem but couldn't get the last mile problem such that there are very few self-driving cars on the road today. The other question that is often, I think, really important to ask on our perspective, and this again goes to the questions of limits, is what if this works out in such a way that it creates other problems? That's like the optimistic realist view. What if this succeeds, but by virtue of success, we exchange the matrix of problems that we have today for the matrix of problems that happens in the world that this bequeaths us? And for that, I was thinking about, and I was writing this down, the concept of IVF. You take IVF. There was this dystopian view. We're going to get Frankenstein babies, uh, or some evil genius is going to steal in the lab and take all the sperm and take all the embryos. But in fact, what happened was it just kind of worked. And in fact, it just kind of worked so well that... It, it reduced the cost for middle and high-income couples to delay childbirth. And in simple economics, if you reduce the cost of any good that's desired, you get more of it. So the average age of childbearing in the country rose and rose and rose for many reasons, not just IVF. And now demand for IVF has doubled in the last 10 years, and there's a supply problem and a price problem and an insurance question. This is not dystopia. This is not utopia. This is just the real world. The technology worked, and we now have to deal with the matrix of problems and opportunities made possible by that working technology. Um, the last thought that I had is I've been thinking a lot about the concept of openness and the virtue of openness. We were talking about this um, uh, at lunch. Um, I, when I talk to scientists, I often have heard them say, I wish that there were more journalists that wrote about science. I wish there was a broader and more open conversation about science. Um, well, in the last three years, we have had a historically broad and historically open conversation about the efficacy of synthetic mRNA vaccine using nanoparticle technology. And I would say that the outcomes of that discussion have not exactly been perfect. The U.S. leads the world in vaccine hesitancy. The country that probably did more than any other country to develop synthetic mRNA technology also leads the world in vaccine hesitancy. That's pretty fascinating to me. And I think it goes to show that openness without institutions and openness without constraints doesn't give you a better world. It just gives you moreness. It just gives you more voices, more people who are right, more people who are wrong, more people who are conspiracy theorists, more people who are moral. It just gives you the virtue, the complex virtue, of moreness. And moreness is not what we're after. What we're after are better outcomes for humans, and arguably all animals, if you want to take the broader um, uh, perspective. So I think it's important to just remember with this last point that um, it's good to bring in more voices into the room, but we should also be uh, understanding of and prepared for the inevitability 
that more voices is going to mean more chaos and more of just about everything. So first of all, I'd like to thank Derek for coming back to the point about social media and giving one of the most concise accounts of why social media are not to be preferred over filtering voices like Derek's who write for places like The Atlantic. But before uh, addressing some of the points for this panel, I do want to steal a moment to uh, make a couple of statements of gratitude on behalf of the observatory. So I would really like to thank the Sanford Stem Cell Institute for having been so generous as as to host us and to take advantage of Jacob Hanna's excellent and illuminating lecture, particularly for you, Derek, uh, to allow us to piggyback this discussion. It's been an extraordinary privilege, and and we're really grateful. And it's also a a model, in a sense, for East-West collaboration across different kinds of institutions. And then I'd also like to say a more internal word of thanks. So, of course, to my co-directors, Ben Hulbert and Chris Saha, but also, and much more so, in a way, to our two postdocs, of whom Andy Murray is one, and Alberto Aparicio, somewhere sitting in the darkened audience, is the other. But Alberto and Andy uh, were the the, uh, gear wheels that really made the whole thing function. And without them, we wouldn't be sitting here and wouldn't have had things to eat and drink and, you know, all those other nice things, as well as a roof over our heads. And then, last but not least, Carrie Wallenetz, who among the many, many hats she wears and has worn, is also an advisor to the um, Global Observatory Project and uh, has been incredibly generous with her time and insights and has traveled across the country to be with us today. So, so, you know, this is in itself um, an institution, to go back to that word that is part of the discussion for this panel is a cluster of people who are actuated by some sense of common purpose. And I think that, Derek, the point you were making about more and more without some kind of institutional um, guiding compass for where the collectivity is going is not worth a great deal. And, And this is a point that I think needs to be made. And I'm truly grateful for all of the different people who have joined us in the common purpose journey today. That said, coming back to the specific points about this panel, I want to make a point that I think has been a little bit understated, though tacitly present, that ethical concerns are not concerns that come only from the public. They come from the scientists themselves. And very often, I mean, Carrie touched on this by saying that scientists often want clear rules and don't want to be left to their own devices. I myself sit on an ethics advisory committee at Harvard and have done so for more than a dozen years. And just the kinds of issues that people bring to our committee uh, are self-driven. They come out of the scientific community where people are really not sure where they're pushing the envelopes and would like to be told, and not just because of the clarity of the rules. I think they genuinely want to share their own moral perturbations and want to have a kind of at least slightly more deliberated discussion with people that they feel comfortable with. And this goes back to Ben's point about delegated versus appropriated um, democracy in a sense. I mean, so 
there are these forums that people want to make use of, possibly not for the purposes that they were constituted for, but they want to enlarge the thinking of these forums. So, Carrie, you talked about sunsetting the rack and then putting a different thing in its place. So, no longer recombinant DNA, but biotechnology more broadly. But this reflects a change in the capabilities of biotechnology and what was deemed an adequate definitional starting point in 1975 is no longer deemed appropriate for the range of issues that has opened up. So our committee at one point went to the authorities of our university and said that given the kinds of concerns that are emanating from the scientists themselves, a broadening of the responsibilities of this committee might be a desirable thing, that it should not any longer be focused around ethical issues connected with stem cell research only because things have moved on. And it turned out that the university was extraordinarily reluctant to make any institution-specific moves that would put us, in some sense, ahead of the game. And one of the institutions that they particularly wanted to defer to was yours, the NIH, because there's a perception that if the research community is all going to be on the same platform and not, in some sense, end up disadvantaging itself, then no university has fields empowered to go someplace where the NIH has not already taken the lead in going because it might come back to damage our scientists because they're creating higher thresholds and higher um, entry barriers for the research carried on at our university. And I think that this is not a unique proposition. I think that this is a kind of thing that universities and research communities around the country feel because of the extraordinarily competitive environment. I myself do occasionally stand back and wonder, what are we competing for? I mean, is it that the first university that cracks how to become immortal is the one that, you know, is sort of seeking the Olympian prize? I mean, why is it, why is it that there is this spirit of global competitiveness such that Nobody wants to put a break on themselves. Maybe that in itself is worth a discussion under this rubric of in search of limits. I mean, why are people afraid of limits? And yet it also means on the flip side that something that we have discovered in the governance world long ago, namely the idea of subsidiarity, is very hard to carry out in the realm of science. So the idea of subsidiarity is that when issues cut very close to the bone, the decisions should be made also as close to the bone as possible. So in our federal system in the U.S., we have kept reserved for the states those decisions that are very close to individual human beings. So questions about marriage, questions about the age of driver's licenses, the questions about age of consent. I mean, you know, these things are not federalized. And in fact, we think very hard about bumping things up to the federal level. But when it comes to research ethics, it seems that that kind of nuanced approach, that word nuance has come up repeatedly in the context of today's conversations, seems less feasible to people in the research community, even though it's obvious that the strengths in research are divided in different ways across the country. So a university that is extraordinarily achieved in neuro 
pathological research may not be the one where the stem cells are being uh, cultivated and devoted. So, so uh, some kind of delegation of authority down to the lowest level, the level that is most concerned with um, that particular area of research, might have some wisdom to it. It's certainly a principle that we've adopted elsewhere. And yet people are so terrified that if you go out on a limb, you will somehow end up keeping, de facto banning your own researchers from competing properly in the marketplace, that they are really scared to be making those moves. And as a result, I think the kind of laboratory approach that we have we have adopted for instance in rosemary's discussion about euthanasia she said that some correctly that some states have different ideas oregon has been a leader in that respect so on on many policy issues affecting biology and affecting lives affecting medicine we have allowed the states leeway so a question i think that is left open for us in, when we talk about institutional gaps and institutional capabilities is why is it that in the research community there is this kind of stranglehold idea of competition that in a way prevents the sort of institutional innovation, the kind of um, thinking close to the ground of where the research is happening that might actually feed innovative ideas up to NIH instead of everybody sitting around as though their hands are tied unless the authority at the top creates a completely level playing field for for everybody else. So I would be interested to hear, Carrie, your responses, but also, Maria, yours, because California with sometimes the fifth and sometimes the sixth largest economy in the world or whatever, you know, is often treated as an island of its own. And therefore, what you evolve in the way of democratic principles to address the first question that was put to this panel, you know, has ramifications for the rest of the country and possibly the rest of the world also. So, you know, why is the scientific community in its self-understandings in its own ambivalence, in its own desire often to have somebody else think about the ethics along with it? Why is it nevertheless stymied by the kinds of institutional arrangements we've set up so that there are not a, a lot of different approaches to thinking, even about you know, how should a committee be structured in relation to hearing really novel questions of, of first of first impression, as one would say in the courts. So I think because Sheila has posed questions to, to both of you, that that seems like a quite reasonable place to start. Um, so just briefly, I, you know, the question of institutional behavior is a fascinating one. You could do a whole workshop on that. But, you know, I, I would just say in a nutshell, you know, I think we have created... We are hoisted on our own petard as a, as a community in some way. We created an ecosystem in which we had a very sharp rise for very good reason in this country, an investment in medical research in a way that has had 
downstream consequences for institutional behavior. We didn't have a sustainability plan, right? We, we, we poured a lot of money into institutions and, and then ended up with this hyper-competitive environment where, you know, it, it seems like every week, you know, a new institutional leader comes on board and says, my goal is to make our institution, you know, in the top 20 of NIH-funded institutions, which is impossible. It's a zero-sum game, right? So, um, but, but we've created this sort of... Um, uh, dependency in some ways as part of our um, government university partnership, which drives both competitive behavior and a, a risk-averse behavior because everyone wants to stay competitive. They want their faculty stay competitive. I think if you talk to institutional leaders, they will bemoan you know, that they're stealing faculty from each other as part of this whole hyper-competitive system that we have all created collectively together. Um, and, and, and ironically, in some ways... Um, uh, institutions, as I mentioned, as part of this risk-averse behavior, you know, create additional barriers for themselves by trying to over-comply. They're so, they're so worried about making sure they're following the rules that, that they do uh, prescript, uh, are, are very prescriptive, while at the same time not being willing to do what you're suggesting, which is taking a proactive approach to emerging issues through sort of established mechanisms. I will say there is actually an example in which institutions we know are doing that, um, the dual-use research of concern policy actually is a great example of a policy that is quite prescriptive, and I should note is sort of currently under under discussion again, um, but where institutions are actually going beyond in the same way you described with an IRB, because scientists are raising those questions and saying, well, actually, even though this doesn't fit the, you know, the law of the policy, we want to go beyond that and, and, and think beyond. But that is a rare example um, uh, within that space. And so now we are in it. We have built this system, and um, how do we get ourselves out of it is uh, probably a much bigger discussion than we would have time for <laughs> today. Um, but but it is this is you know back to my point of understanding all the the motivations of the players in the system. I mean, the motivation of institutions is driven by this this history and very big picture of creating this hyper competitive environment in biomedical research, which unfortunately does have these inadvertent consequences consequences where everyone is so busy, you know, chasing that competitive system, they don't have time to, to stop and think about, um, uh, you know, some of these um, uh, uh, more horizon scanning, deeper thoughts that we, that we probably should in an ideal world. So I first want to understand the question a little bit more. So if, if is the question, um, how can one motivate on the lowest to the lowest level of you know relevant discussion, um, important issues in, in terms of where research could be enabled by by proper limit setting. I think is that correct? Well, I guess I guess it's a little bit more that um, in these very fuzzy zones where people themselves are ambivalent about what the right outcome should be, very often. In matters of governance, we've said it's a good idea to allow experimentation or allow freedom or allow greater autonomy and not to have a one-size-fits-all rule. So are we ever going to know what the right age for handing out a driver's license is? We were having this discussion yesterday just within our small group about how, you know, in South Carolina, when you're 15, 
years and two weeks old, mm-hmm. you can get a permanent license after having been a learner for exactly two weeks. And, you know, you can take a checklist test in, Ar- in Arizona without ever having to, you know, go and park a car, if I understood it rightly. So, you know, in these kinds of domains, we've said it's fine. I mean, you know, you wouldn't be able to get away with that in Massachusetts, but you can do it in Arizona. It's all right. But with regard to scientific research, we don't end up with any kind of plausible experimentation of that sort. We don't have different kinds of relationships between ethics advisory committees and the scientists. Of course, there are differences, and we could get into into those. But But there's an extraordinary fear of holding back the research, the research, as if it's one thing, uh, by allowing debate in a way to get ahead of itself. I mean, so it's almost like issues aren't allowed to mature. Uh, There's a sense that you shouldn't even be bringing these kinds of questions to the table because if you do, it'll... You know, perturb the waters too the much. The rabbit in the hat. So I was just wondering whether, you know, because um, after all, came into being as a as a blowback against federal policy. This was when federal policy was very uptight about anything to do with stem cell research. Um, you created a space, and within that space, you know, how much room do you find for institutional uh, variation across the? different California institutions? Do you find you know, different kinds of relationships across the different... For instance, you said in the 2020 reauthorization, there's now a wider range of endpoints and not just stem cell research. So are the ethical deliberations around those different areas being institutionalized in different ways? I mean, so what... If we looked at your experience of running a somewhat different mechanism, state-specific, over the last 18 or however many years, you know, would one see room for institutional innovations or something that the rest of the country or the rest of the world might learn from? Thank you so much. Um, so CIRM is an, a very different type of model, but I have to say that um, as part of that model, what's built in is actually to take the broader conversation into the agency. So, I'll, so for instance, in terms of guiding the conversations regarding um, regarding um, mitochondrial replacement or um, embryo um, embryo editing, etc., we uh, convene a standards working group that have representation from those who have had the broader conversation, you know, uh, globally, internationally. Um, And then, you know, in the context of the types of programs we fund. Um, And that informs our governance in terms of, you know, the response to those considerations. So in in some ways, we, we don't, Always defers to the NIH. In fact, there, you know, we CERM came into being because of the of the restrictions and, and what the NIH could do with embryonic stem cell research. And there's still restrictions, right? So, um, 
And so CERM was a response to those restrictions. But in carrying out the research, um, there's actually um, in the statute itself, in legislation, a medical and ethics um, component to it by which the agency needs to adhere. Uh, so that's by law. So that if there's any changes to that, that, w- that then we would bring, um, you know, uh, things forward for legislative um, action. And we do that in, in, in a variety of ways uh, for things such as um, some of our um, uh, rules surrounding um, intellectual property, for instance. Um, so we could do something like that if needed. Let's say the standards working group and our board uh, says, we have reason to believe that this is an important, uh, uh, you know, um, um, amendment or change we need to make in the Constitution re- guiding us that would have to go through that process and it would have to be through the legislative process, which, of course, you know, by nature is a representation of, of the Californians who voted for it. Um, I, I hope that answered that part of the question, but there was also the kind of the real world on the ground narrative component to it, which allows us to be more um, of a learning environment and nimble in terms of how we um, how we discuss um, real situations when we are um, uh, supporting the research and we're guiding um, our grantees. There are uniform standards in terms of what the different institutions who are funded and entities who are funded by CERM need to abide by. They're governed by our rules and our policies, and they're, the, and they're embedded within the terms of the award. And we even get as granular as milestone-based performance, and there's oversight in terms of the conduct of, of this research. We rely on the institutional review boards and the relevant authorities, such as the FDA, on, you know, on matters related to um, uh, either the conduct of the clinical trial, et cetera. Um, and um, so I think it's more of a uh, – serves as a hub to bring in all the, the relevant conversations and standards and, and regulations in the conduct of the research. So it's not an independent, you know, <laughs> even though it is a state level, it, it really brings in a lot of the international and national standards um, into how we execute on the, on, the, uh, on the plan. Great, thanks. So we don't have a ton of time left. I'm just going to pose a question. Whoever would like to answer it, can answer it, and then we'll open things up to the floor. So um, I am glad that, Derek, you brought this up again, this this idea of openness, because this is something I wanted to bring up again. Ben asked a question on the first panel, what is openness really? Um, and in that panel, we saw various definitions of it. Um, you know, Mostly in that first panel, it was about allowing non-scientists to see the lab or to have increased access to scientific information or to understand enough to have a conversation, uh, making scientists themselves more accessible. Um, in the next panel, there were some different versions of openness on display. Uh, it meant opening discursive spaces in, in human rights discourses by uh, creating spaces for narrative knowledge and clinical training curricula, for example, as Rosemarie was talking about. Um, and then on this panel, I've seen a few different sort of versions of openness. Um, one is making processes of governance open to stakeholder and practitioner participation. Um, and another one that you talked about, Derek, is is creating discursive space for these uh, alternate stories of more complex futures that are neither utopian nor dystopian. So um, I was just wondering if any of you would like to reflect on how, you know, whether public policy or journalism, but um, how 
each of these is engaged in its own norms of openness and how these forms of openness influence and perhaps delimit the roles that publics can play in science and technology governance. So what does it mean to be open to public contributions on the one hand or open in the sense of forthright with engaged publics and what are the limits on the forms of the, these forms of openness that you encounter in practice? Um, I'll take a stab at this. So um, maybe I'll move the vocabulary a little bit away from openness. Um, I think there is a I think a really important problem that journalists have, and maybe this is an important problem that just people in general have as a species, is articulating uncertainty. There's a huge financial and professional incentive in journalism to be certain. Um, certainty is pretty interesting. It's very interesting to read certainty. It's very interesting to watch certainty. Um, the most popular cable news hosts, the most popular podcast hosts, I would say, are very good at performing certainty. Um, science is, uh, you know, what did, uh, I've, I've tried to quote this today. What did Feynman say? Science is the belief in the wrongness of experts, something along those lines. The, the, the belief that the experts that came before you might be wrong is an incredibly powerful motivation for scientists, for, for me as well, honestly, as, as, a, as a writer. The idea that, that someone out there is wrong. Someone out there thinks they understand industrial policy. They think they understand the unemployment rate, but I, I think I can figure out something. I think I can figure out a take that will introduce a new element of truth, this incredibly complex picture. I think to a certain extent, that's what a lot of scientists are trying to do themselves. They're trying to you know, dig us out of ignorance. And it's very difficult, I think, for the media to articulately communicate uncertainty. And um, there's lots of uncertainty, obviously, in the presentation we have today. Where this, is, this is an emerging science. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done in scientific reporting in the last three years has been based in the pandemic, which has just been one big cavalcade of uncertainty. And I think that both public health officials and journalists um, have gotten, and politicians have, um, have gotten over their skis in, in communicating uh, in ways that seem certain that which was not, right? Um, the idea that masks clearly don't work. Oh, wait, actually, maybe they do work. Oh, no, wait, actually, maybe only KN5 masks work when there's a decent population of people around. Like, science is, is just... It's complicated, I think, to communicate in an entertaining way that you're dealing with a living, breathing organism of epistemic goop. And it's constantly evolving and changing, and, 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 and it's weird. And you have to... I, and being interesting while communicating that, that, that complexity, I think, is, um, is a huge um, challenge. It's, something, it's, a, it's a standard that I try to hold myself to, but making, making the uncertain interesting is, is hard. You know... It's interesting to connect this question with um, this conversation about um, human embryonic stem cells and sort of seeing that as a case study for understanding um, uh, uh, today. You know, that is a, we, we sort of, um, in some ways, we're looking back in history and, and um, uh, seeing it through kind of the retrospective lens, but as someone who lived through that time period and, and was actively working on embryonic stem cell policy, including the formation of CERM and, and some of these other things, I mean, there are some interesting, I think, um, uh, aspects that maybe we should examine in thinking about how, you know, what lessons can be learned when talking about the new age, whether that's synthetic embryos or, or gene editing or, or cell-based technologies, because, you know, I would argue... Um, human embryonic stem cells is an example where you did have this experimentation at the federal and, and state level because you're right, CIRM and a number of other state 
level policies were in direct reaction to sort of a federal policy decision, which on one hand was a a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction. On the other hand, was maybe more nuanced than we sort of in retrospect give it credit for because it put limits and yet also allowed some work to go forward. Was it a great policy? No, for a lot of, of reasons. <laughs> but um, but it's not sort of the, you know, the, the kind of complete ban that we sort of portray it as today. Um, it, it opened the door for this sort of state versus federal level experimentation. Um, but it's also a great example on the communication front where we saw public evolution, both in terms of the actual public and media coverage and policymakers of of points of view where people change their minds based on information over time and also develop these incredibly nuanced point of views. You know, today, I think a lot of issues, you could probably predict how a policymaker or a member of the public based on their sort of declared political intention might feel about something human embryonic stem cells sort of defied that in a lot of ways because people were able to express these nuanced views in which they might say, I, you know, I am opposed to the use of embryos in research generally, or maybe I, you know, I am opposed to abortion. But in this case where you're using surplus IVF embryos that are going to be discarded anyways, I would rather see those be used for um, research than, you know, be discarded. I mean, people develop these incredibly nuanced views that were not necessarily predictable um, based on sort of their views on, on related topics. And so, you know, it's an interesting case study for thinking about you know, what What was it about that particular conversation, national debate, that allowed for that more nuanced conversation and this evolution in policymaking that we haven't necessarily seen in other types of these kinds of technologies? Um, I'm not sure even having lived through it, I could necessarily articulate all of those lessons, but it is an interesting case study. Maybe it's just in the age of social media, which was not a thing, then we are no longer able to have those, you know, sort of longer term, more nuanced conversations in, in public discourse. But it's it's worth thinking about looking, at, you know, in, in retrospect, what what was it that worked about that? Okay, I think we can open it up to questions we have about very few minutes <laughs> remaining. <laughs> um, but if we could run a few mics out, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, I have a comment for uh, Derek. Um, I'm uh, In the earlier panel where um, we were discussing cosmopolitan ethics, I, I didn't get a chance to say as much as I had hoped that I would be able to say about the role of journalism, particularly long-form journalism, the kind that The Atlantic... Uh, the New Yorker and uh, Harper's, as well as many other venues, uh, put forward uh, about that really ethical work of translating and making available to at least a theoretically broad public uh, in a complex way these issues uh, and that role in bringing the work of science and medicine uh, that is often understood as not public um, into the public. And there are all sorts of great examples of this. Um, I would have shown an image 
of an article that was written, um, I think it was December of 2000, uh, or January of, two, of 2020, by Sarah uh, Zhang at the uh, Atlantic uh, on Down syndrome in Denmark. And uh, that was an extremely important article in laying out the ethical issues uh, that I described very briefly in relation specifically to Down syndrome, but in terms of genetic testing and uh, termination. Uh, and, I mean, there are many, many examples of this. Uh, Gina Collada, Joe Shapiro, Ed Young. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, and I think that being able to figure out pathways for the kinds of translation projects, if you will, that I'm talking about in journalism, especially like your concept of moreness, which is quite wonderful, uh, to bring that into, as I had suggested, into uh, the world of education, of curriculum development, of teaching, uh, to think about where uh, your conversations can structure more directly uh, conversations and maybe policy, regulation, and practice to get those um, structures in better place is is a good investment of um, resources somehow. So thank you, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for calling the Atlantic's audience theoretically broad. I agree with that, with that general uh, characterization. Um, yeah. I think that nuance at scale is hard. Um, that's what it comes down to. Um, nuance at scale is really hard. Those pieces by Sarah, Ed, so incredibly high touch. They take four months, five months. They take five editors. Um, take a long, long time. Fact checkers, copy, um, copywriters. So, um, art. It's um, it's it's a huge endeavor. And uh, and yeah, nuance at scale is a tough problem. I think for any for a media community to solve at large. Shall we end where we started? It looks like, yeah. Jacob. Oh, yeah. Um, just a question. Perhaps uh, might be uh, confusing because I'm you know I'm not um, an American. I'm not based in America, but I've always you know, baffled me. Um, in the government where the NIH, which represents the government by, by assumption, um, when you dictate a policy, and whether you're saying, well, we're going to place a moratorium on new ESL derivation, or we're actually placing a moratorium on cross-species chimeric uh, experiments, but on the other hand, there is no legislation banning that, and knowingly that this research does exist and it's going to be funded by private entities. And 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 I wonder, you know, what kind of message then does that send? You know, this means like it's just, it's just actually having it both ways, uh, in a way. And um, and this is something you know very. I think it's a little bit, to me it's like an elephant in the room when we're talking about policy. Um. <laughs> You know, that is an, ex well, 
It's an example, actually, of the point I was making about how hard it is to do sort of public engagement with policy, right? Um, so, you know, that moratorium um, was an attempt to do sort of horizon scanning, proactive, you know, policy in which clearly we were approaching this. We were looking on the horizon. We saw an emerging issue. We weren't funding any of that research. So there was an opportunity to, to sort of say, okay, before we do this, we're going to we're going to take a deep breath and, and try to do something proactive. Um, and, the, you know, the and it was to put forward essentially what I like to think of as enforced deliberateness, you know, an additional uh, review was the, the proposed policy. Um, there was an enormous reaction to that policy in terms of the number of comments, which has delayed, um, uh, you know, so the, the policy process, I think we got 22,000 comments or, or something like that, all of which are public, so you can go and, and read them. And they're a fascinating read, actually, of public perception of these issues to the point that you made about, you know, what is the headline going to be? Because the vast majority of those comments sort of fell into two buckets. One, people who just focused on the word embryo and so there was sort of a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a pro-life kind of viewpoint of don't do experiments on human embryos. These weren't human embryos. So it was a, you know, misreading of the, the comments. But then there was also an enormous sort of reaction to the very concept of animal-human chimeras, sort of forgetting the fact or, or you know, not, there was a clear lack of awareness of how ubiquitous animal-human chimeras are in science and medicine, in fact, right? I mean, but there was sort of this, nor, you know, this normative reaction from the public, like, you know, the island of Dr. Moreau, um, which I, you know, I, I will say just speaking only for myself, I hadn't anticipated that. I had, I had lost sight of the fact that something that as a scientist, as someone embedded in a research agency, talked about all the time, just sort of accepted, oh, well, everybody knows what a, you know, animal human chimera. That was incredibly, I look back now and realize, like, both arrogant and ignorant of me. And I, I should have expected, actually, that that public reaction. Um, and, and that hadn't been part of my sort of engagement strategy because that wasn't what I was focused on, was focused on this emerging kind of biotechnology issue. And I was like, this is great. We're being proactive. We're, we're, we're doing the right thing here. And so it's a good example of where the... Um, uh, the policy process, you know, is not well equipped in some ways to, to think in this kind of horizon scanning way that involves public discourse, um, uh, because, you know, that's, that's not typically actually the way we do policy. We usually, you know, a, a knee jerk react, as I, I said. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good sort of learning experience of, you know, how we do this and, and how might we do it better. Um, I don't have all the, the answers to that, but uh, good to learn from. Yeah, so we are over time. None of us has all the answers, of course, so we'll have to continue these discussions. I'm certain that they will continue. I would like to thank our panelists on this panel. I would like to thank our panelists on every panel. Uh, and, of course, as Sheila said, an extra special thank you to our hosts who are tolerating us being five minutes over time on the last panel. Sorry. Uh, thanks very much for coming.